this going here. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Today we should make it to uh, the halfway mark, essentially, of this particular book. Uh, Solomon began back in chapter 1 by declaring the vanity of life under the sun. Uh, And even in our passage today, uh, he will once again mention uh, what he calls the futility of life or uh, the striving after wind, which so accurately describes the experience of those who essentially are living life without a biblical biblical worldview. Uh, describing people who are living life um, with a, a secular perspective. So I uh, just want to remind us that, that Ecclesiastes isn't about some kind of skeptical uh, agnosticism. I don't think that Solomon is just sort of throwing in the towel and saying, I'm completely confused, totally disillusioned. Uh, a lot of people read Ecclesiastes with a very negative slant, uh, but I actually think it's a, it's a, there's a positive note throughout the whole uh, book and that it's not about that necessarily, uh, the doubtings and the frustrations that I think it's pointing us to life as a gift from God and, and, it, and, and telling us that we can enjoy life as a gift from God. Uh, it's about exercising reverent faith and trust in God. So, it's not simply a message about futility and vanity. I think it's a message of hope. Uh, Ecclesiastes represents this sort of painful autobiography of Solomon, who for much of his life squandered God's blessing on his own personal pursuits, uh, his own personal pleasure rather than God's glory. So we have this example for us, Israel's essentially Israel's most powerful king at the end of his life, uh, feeling powerless, uh, unable in a, in a way to control his life, uh, unable to control what happens to his work, unable to control what's going to happen to his wealth after he, after he passes away, uh, unable to prevent his death. I mean, all these things are, are, are coming to his mind. And uh, at one point, we, we just recognize that earlier in Solomon's life, Solomon was surrounded by affluence, he was surrounded by success uh, and pleasure, but then later in life, after making a lot of poor decisions and sinful decisions, he sort of hits rock bottom in, this miserable, in his miserable existence and returns. He, I think he repents. Um, I think he, he turns from his idolatry, I think he, he sort of returns from the mire uh, returns to the Lord. I don't, I don't think he ever really gave up his faith in God. Uh, he didn't always understand God's plan. He didn't always understand sort of those inner workings of, of God's creation and even the personal providence of God. He didn't always get that. He didn't always understand why God did certain things at certain times in certain people's lives. Occasionally, and when this comes out in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, you, you sort of do sense on occasion that he, he is frustrated by those things, uh, sometimes frustrated by the plan, but ultimately I think he embraces this, this plan of God and comes to the right conclusions. And then essentially what he does is he writes it down. So he comes to these conclusions, he formulates these lessons, and then he sits down and much like he did with the book of Proverbs, he, he teaches us. He's, I think he's eager at this stage of his life to warn subsequent generations about the mistakes that he made in his life. And so he, he writes, I mean, we, we could say 
because we know this is true. We know how broadly the book of Ecclesiastes is, has been published, but I'm saying even on a more, more personal level, he could have been writing this with his own sons like he did in Proverbs with his own children in mind and his own grandchildren saying, listen, guys, don't, don't chase after the things in life that I've chased after. Uh, don't go down some of those uh, sort of dead, dead end uh, streets. Uh, don't make those same tragic mistakes that I made. So he's really living at this point with a, a burning desire to teach those kinds of life-saving truths and really helps us to know how fulfilling life can be when we see things from God's perspective. So his message is not that nothing matters. His message is that everything matters. His message is that the details matter. Even those mundane things are, are, don't have to be meaningless things. Uh, the small things matter. The, the way that we treat people, the daily pursuits, the way that we approach God, the way that we, we view our homes, the way that we think about food, uh, our view of our work, uh, whether we idolize our work or we complain about our work or we're, we're lazy in it and we avoid it. And then as we saw last time, the way that we handle our money. Um, things that may appear to be insignificant. And, and mundane and repetitive, but things that can make the difference between failure and success. So the book of, of Ecclesiastes essentially is bo- boiling these things down to the simple things, the necessary things, the things that, if not attended to, will, will lead to disaster. And it's, it's meant to lead us to do what Solomon did. It's, it's meant to lead us to think, uh, to, to observe, to reflect on the deep things of life, not the gloom and doom, uh, but the reality, the way that things really are. Um, now that we're living, as we've said many times, now that we live outside of the Garden of Eden and yet still this side of, of heaven and of glory, which quite honestly most people don't do a lot of, right? There's not a lot of people. Everybody's going through the monotony. Right, everybody's going to work, and everybody's getting up and getting dressed and raising families, and and they're experiencing the very same things that we experience. But very few people are doing what Solomon did. Very few people are actually stepping back and reflecting on these things, right, and actually asking those questions um, about where we come from and where we're headed and what's the purpose of life and and morality and the direction of history and all that. They're they're not they're not asking those questions. And so you see them, especially this time of year, a lot of frenzy, a lot of activity going on, but very few people are thinking about those deep things, right? I mean, they're caught up in a lot of those surface experiences. And so they're not taking the time to think and observe and reflect for whatever reason, whether they're too busy, uh, maybe just too self-absorbed uh, or, or focused. Uh, some may even be afraid, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are just afraid to stop <laughs> long enough to actually consider uh, some of those those deeper things. So Ecclesiastes sort of pushes us, it pushes every reader of this book to face these things head on. It sort of takes us, it, 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 it understands that we spend a lot of time, we live most of our time down on the first level, and it's, it sort of gets us up on the second level and, and encourages us, challenges us to see these things uh, from a different perspective and to be, be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. So the last time we were together for this study a couple of weeks ago, we, we finished up chapter 5 uh, where we heard from Solomon about the issue of money uh, and our perspective on riches and wealth. 
which he continues that theme into chapter 6. Uh, some of you may have wondered, you know, what's, what's the deal with that? Uh, here we have a, a guy that essentially is the richest man who ever lived, and he's trying to give us advice about uh, the monotony of paying bills and, and working a job and getting a paycheck. It's, I thought about this. It's, it's sort of like Donald Trump going to the slums and saying, cheer up, money isn't everything, right? It's like it kind of just you're like, why is this guy – telling me about the ins and outs of, of daily monotonous things, this guy could have gone out and done anything. <laughs> he didn't. He had everything that he wanted, and yet he is he's trying to give us some sort of counsel about those struggles that we have day-to-day and week-to-week. Um, and yet, his answers, I think, are, are actually surprising uh, for those of us who are in that sort of uh, that if-only-I-had-blank game. Right. I mean, we're always thinking about if only this were different, if only that person would do this, if only I owned one of those. That's the world that we live in uh, much of the time. And yet Solomon gives us some very, very helpful uh, counsel in how to deal with these things. Let's just read the chapter before we dive in here. Chapter six, Ecclesiastes, verse one. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. Obscurity, It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? And what advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the, eye, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is, for there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a, to a man? For who knows? What is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So, in a nutshell, uh, Solomon is saying prosperity isn't always and necessarily a good thing, right? So, um, he'll sort of reverse this, this concept when we get to chapter 7 next time. But essentially what he's saying is that we, we make, some, we make some, ba- some assumptions about prosperity and riches and wealth. And he's saying it's, it's not always necessarily a good thing to, to, to have material things and to have riches. Uh, in fact, he'll say essentially that prosperity can be very deceiving. And, and with these realities in view, Solomon seeks to, I think, dispel four myths. I want to give you these four myths that he dispels, I think, throughout this, this chapter, just give us some, some ways to kind of hang up some of our thoughts on. Myth number one that, that Solomon dispels is this, that having it all guarantees that you will enjoy it all. 
Having it all guarantees that you will enjoy it all. Again, verse 1, there is an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. So it just says that this is a, this is a prevalent problem, problem which, which is, isn't a surprise to us. Uh, if we understand, we talked about this a lot last time, this, uh, the reality that the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, it makes total sense that this is a, a prevalent a problem in light of the fact that, that covetousness, if you think about the, even just the Ten Commandments, that covetousness sort of is involved whenever we violate God's word. There, there's an element of that. And so because of that, that I guess, uh, huge umbrella of, of, of covetousness and the love of money and all the things that those issues feed into, he just says this is a very common thing. This is a very common experience among men. It's, it's e- very easy to observe this. You don't have to go far. You may only have to look in the mirror to observe this. Um, but if not in your own life, you can certainly look around and you see this, this evil or this, uh, it could be translated as a calamity or even a misery. So we look around us and we see <laughs> other people, let's just say around us in, in our lives, people that we work with, uh, people in our families, neighbors, uh, again, sometimes even in our, in our own lives, we see and, 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 and observe this, this sort of misery that is, that is going on. So what exactly is it? What exactly is the evil or the, the misery that is so prevalent? Verse 2, he tells us, he says, A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So notice what Solomon says. Very, very important. First of all, he says, and you can't, you don't, you don't want to just read over this because this is this is like, this is like life altering. When you he says things sometimes, and you can just sort of read over them, and you're like, yeah, I get that, but these really are life altering truths. And the first thing that he tells us in verse 2 is that God is the one that gives riches. <laughs> I mean, w- that is not a common belief, right? I mean, that is not what the average person on this planet, it's not what's going through their mind. And yet Solomon, it just says it as if it's just, you know, this is just I- I accepted in his heart and in his mind. God has given riches and wealth and honor. Well, how is that? Well, because Solomon understood that God, that everything in this world belongs to God, right? So everything that you and I possess is given to you by God. And God, we might even say, because I think the dilemma in, or where people go with this is, yeah, but, I mean, I understand that God owns everything, but, I mean, I'm the, I work. <laughs> I mean, I work and, and, and I do a job and I get paid. And God says, yeah, but even the ability to do that is a gift, right? You remember uh, God reminded Israel that, of that back in Deuteronomy 8, 18, that God gives you the power to make wealth. And that, again, is just not, a, that is not a, a part of the fabric of the world that we live in. They don't acknowledge that God owns everything. They don't acknowledge that God is the one that gives them everything that they have. And they don't acknowledge that even when they're involved in the process of, of getting or earning something, that even the ability to get that or to earn it or to work for it, even that is a gift from God. But notice, 
Not only does the Lord give these things, he also is the one who gives us the power to consume them, right? So he talks about this, this issue of this man. Has, it says that he, in the New American Standard, God has not empowered him to eat from them. The term eat is just, uh, it, it means to devour or to con- consume or to use something. And so he's, he's he, in his example here, Solomon just says there, there is a man that has obtained riches He's obtained wealth, he's obtained honor, but he cannot partake of them. Something is keeping him from either flat out using these things on a practical level, just like he, he's, he, it's as if he's gone and he's worked for something, and then he, for some practical reason he can't actually access the thing that he's, he's, he's earned or that he's made. He can't get to it. He can't get into a position to be able to consume it. And even if he's able to consume the things that he's made or the things that, that he, he has or possesses, it's as if Solomon's saying even in that situation, he can't enjoy it. So even if he has the ability to make use of it, he doesn't really enjoy the things that he has or owns. Now, this description could be autobiographical, right? I mean, we, this is one of those chapters that if you read through it, it's, it's Solomon's giving us these sort of uh, examples. There's a man, you know, and there's another man over here. And it's, but, I, but I read this as if Solomon is just saying, I'm the man. I mean, I mean it's as if he's, he's doing this. Uh, he, he's, he's writing it as if it's in the third person. But I really believe this whole chapter is it's just Solomon looking in the mirror and saying, this is, this is me. And we know that Solomon was given these things, right? We could go to Second Chronicles chapter 1. Uh, you remember we, we talked about this weeks ago. Solomon had the opportunity at a, at a point in his life to ask God for anything. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom, right? So Second Chronicles 1.11 says this, God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor. <laughs> those very same things. Or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you had possessed, nor those who will come after you. So, so we know from Scripture that Solomon absolutely had these blessings. The very things that he's saying, there's this guy, and of, the, of all the things that he mentions, there's a guy that has these three things. Scripture tells us that these were the very things that God told Solomon as a consequence of his request that God was going to give him these other things anyway. So we know that Solomon had these blessings. But we also know that Solomon experienced at times the misery of not being able to enjoy the blessings of life. And this man that, that's portrayed in verse 2, essentially Solomon is saying he has it all, but he cannot enjoy it. He has all these things, but he cannot enjoy them. In fact, he says what? A foreigner enjoys them. Now, why, we don't know. What's going on here and, and why this guy can't get to these things and make use of them? And who is the foreigner? I mean, we can think of a lot of things that keep people from enjoying the blessings that God has given to them in life. Um, it seems in, in some ways that, he, that this person that he's describing, and again, it's, some of it, it has an autobiographical sort of flair to it, um, 
but there could, he could be trying to broaden this out so that it's not people don't immediately assume that it's only him that he's talking about, but this is a common experience. So he describes this person that perhaps has no children uh, or maybe dies as a young adult, and so his possessions end up going to uh, a total stranger. Whatever the case, the possession of what he has and the enjoyment of what he has don't automatically go together. And so the myth is that if you have all these things, you're going to enjoy all these things. And Solomon would say, you don't always have those two things together. Those are separate things. And yet, what do we do? We're guilty of this, right? We, we look at other people. Sometimes people that have things have more than what we have or have the things that we want. And we, we assume that they are enjoying those things, Right? I mean, when we see others and they have things that we want, our assumption is that they're enjoying what they have, right? And Solomon is just saying, listen, we, we got to be careful. That's a myth. We need to be careful about, we use the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. Solomon's just saying, listen, when you see other people and you see people that have or are able to have things that you're not able to have, just don't make this assumption that they're, that they're enjoying the things that they have. Don't judge too quickly. In fact, Walter, Walt Kaiser says this in his commentary. He says, quote, Mortals should never get confused about the true state of, of others' affairs by looking merely at their outward, sta- outward state of affairs. A person may possess wealth, honor, numerous children, long life, and virtually every outward, outward good that anyone could possibly imagine, yet he can still be a very broken, dissatisfied, and unhappy person. This is because... God has deliberately isolated the gift of the goods themselves from the gift of the power to be able to enjoy those same gifts. <laughs> so he's just saying, this is, this is God, God did this intentionally. This isn't an accident, right? He's saying God intentionally separates those things. He isolates the gifts of the goods themselves from the gift of the power to be able to enjoy those very same things. So this is the, some of the frustration, if you will. This is some of the, these are some of the things Solomon is wrestling with. Because in one case, God not only grants prosperity, but also the ability to enjoy it. And we see people like that. I mean, we see people that, are, that have God's gifts, and they seem to be enjoying them, right? And they actually are enjoying them because they have a proper view of those things. And then in other cases, we see that God doesn't grant that gift. He gives them the things... They keep pursuing the things, and he graciously gives them the things that they're pursuing, but he just doesn't provide with it the enjoyment. So at the very least, Solomon says this is vanity. It's, it's something that weighs heavily on men. It's, it's something that's puzzling, and it's certainly something that is very common. It, it happens all the time. So all around us every day, there, there are people that do not enjoy the blessings of life because they lack the fear of the Lord, or, or maybe they're experiencing trouble in their home, or maybe it's physical limitations, and in some cases, death comes before they are able to experience and enjoy certain things. Solomon says, listen, enjoyment doesn't inherently come with increased possessions. You can have an abundance of possessions and yet lack the power to enjoy them. So we, we need to acknowledge that, that God is the giver of riches, but we also need to acknowledge that the ability to enjoy things is as uh, is is a, is much of a gift from God as.
the things themselves. And God wants us to enjoy, he says, enjoy the giver (laughs) more than the gift, right? So myth number one is having it all guarantees you will enjoy it all. Myth number two, living a long life guarantees you will grow in happiness. Living a long life guarantees that you will grow in happiness. So it's, it's as if the first example he gives here is a man who we would say hypothetically doesn't have a lot of family, dies on, on the, on the, on the, on, uh, at a younger age, and so he's, he's at that stage of life where he doesn't have a family, but he's, just, he's beginning to accumulate. And he's, he's accumulating, but for whatever reason, he, he's not able to control where those things go, and there's not anybody sort of directly in his life that would be the recipients of those things. If he were to pass away, there's nobody really there close that would, would, uh, would, uh, would possess, take over possession of those things. In this case... When we start into to verse three, it's it's as if he's saying, "Well, well, what if what if? But what if there's a man that was blessed with an abundance of children? So so there's this guy that doesn't have a, a large family and maybe doesn't live a long life. But what about the guy that does have a large family? What about the guy that that does have a large progeny and and does live a long life? Would he still need the gift of enjoyment from God? Well, what does he say? Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. Okay? Now, that's, that's a blunt statement. You know, I mean, and this isn't the first time that he's made a statement like this, right? I mean, other, we've already run into those passages where he says, it would be better off for you to never have been born. Right, than to be experiencing some of the vanities of life. Uh, and Solomon says here that a, a miscarriage or a, a, an unborn baby or a stillbirth is better off than this man with a hundred children. Now, for those who have miscarried children, uh, this statement can, uh, at first glance, it hurts when you read that. You're like, hey... <laughs> I mean, I don't know where this guy's coming from, but he obviously has not experienced this. Uh, it, it, it's a, it can frighten people when they read things like this. Um, it can seem that Solomon speaks without any human sensitivity to our struggles and, our, and some of the pains that we go through in life. It can also seem that he's theologically inaccurate by speaking as if there is no heaven or light or comfort for such a child, only darkness. But as we read it, I think a little bit more carefully, we understand that Solomon is using, again, Ecclesiastes is poetry. So I think what Solomon is doing here is he's using poetry to expose the fallacy in the thinking of the godless wealthy man or, or, or this, the materialist. Okay, And remember, I was talking to Kelly about this yesterday, Solomon had a brother that died. Okay, so... Uh, in fact, he died when he was only seven years old, seven days old, because Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. Okay, so there was a, there was a child uh, that was born from the, the relationship between David and Bathsheba. That child lived lived for seven days. That was Solomon's older brother. Okay, Solomon was the next child to come along that were born from from those two individuals, and so I don't think that he's being insensitive. I mean, I actually, I think that this, that, that this hits very close to home for Solomon. 
and, and I was telling Kelly, it's one of the things that frustrates me about all the commentaries that are written about Ecclesiastes that are trying to get us to not accept the fact that Solomon wrote this book. Because this is one of those things that you get to in the book that you think, okay, if just some generic guy that pretended to be Solomon wrote this 200 years after Solomon lived, it wouldn't quite have that impact. But when you realize if, if Solomon wrote this, he's not just throwing out these statements about miscarriages. and those, I mean, he knows what these things are. And these are very personal things and you really miss out on that whole historical context of what's going on in in this in this situation so think about what solomon is saying solomon is saying in essence that it was better for his older brother who lived seven days than for a man who lives his entire life a long life but lives his life self-deceived assuming that the longer that he lives and the larger his family, the more happiness that he will experience. He's just saying that his older brother to have spent seven days on this planet, that that was better than for a guy to go his whole life and to be deceived by prosperity, essentially. So he describes this man. Again, I think this is Solomon looking in the mirror. He is a man with abundant resources and a large family, both of which to an Old Testament Jew were marks of God's special favor. But his family doesn't love him. I mean, because if if his family were, (laughs) it's like something's missing here. This guy's got, he's got family and he's got a long life and he's got all these things, but something's not jiving. And it's because I think what he's saying is that, that there's no love in the home. And when he dies, he's not lamented. Not lamented by who? By his own family. <laughs> was he lamented or not lamented by, by those in, in a broader circle? Uh, you know, maybe he's talking about that in Solomon's case. Again, he could have seen this on a national scale. He talked about the kings. Remember how the king grows up and he gets people surround him that just want favors and then eventually they want to replace him and then they get a younger king and it, he comes up but then soon... He, he loses his popularity, and the, and the people want another king. <laughs> so he could have been talking at that level, but it could be very personal as well. So it seems that his relatives, in this, this scenario he's describing, it, it seems that his relatives stayed around him. Why? To use his money. <laughs> Only to use his money. In fact, you remember what Solomon looked, just back at chapter 5, verse 11. You remember this, we talked about this. Last time, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? And that's what it's basically this concept of if the freeloaders show up, right? As things increase, the people come, right? And you end up kind of looking on as these people are trying to maneuver to find ways that they can take advantage of and get your, get your stuff. So here this family that surrounds this man is they're just sitting around waiting for the day when this man dies. They're waiting for the old man to die, and when he finally does die, his surviving relatives could hardly wait for the reading of his will. That's basically what's going on. (laughs) So in reality, this rich man was actually very poor. He couldn't really enjoy his money, and he couldn't really enjoy his family because there was no love in the home. And they didn't even mourn when the man died, and they didn't give him a proper burial, which was a sign 
a, a massive sign of disrespect in this culture. Uh, I mean, it was a sign essentially in the Old Testament. You find passages where cursing is associated with not giving a proper burial. And so this family, these people that are surrounding this man who has all these things, all these material possessions, these folks don't even give him a proper burial, which is a sign of disrespect and disregard for his very life. And Solomon's conclusion is that it were, it were better for this man had he never been born or that he had been stillborn. Why? Verse 4, for it, this is the miscarriage, the, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. Some of your translations, it's, it's actually a term for, um, for darkness. So it's covered in darkness. Verse 5, it never sees the sun. It never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. So generally speaking, few children enter the world with very much pomp and circumstance, um, their births are relatively uh, in, in, in obscurity. Uh, they're not famous. They're not wealthy. They're, they're not much of, of anything. And what they will become is not yet known. I mean, that's the case with every person pretty much that's born. But in the case of a miscarriage, Solomon says that no memory of the child remains either because no one gave it a name or because no one recognizes the name since the individual never entered the sphere of their existence. And so you think about this. I mean, some of you have gone through this. I said, or you know people in our, we've had this happen multiple times in, in, in the life of our church. I'm saying when, they, when these things happen, oftentimes, depending on how far along uh, a mother is, sometimes parents don't name those babies. In some cases they do. Even if they go full term and they die shortly after birth, and they have a name, the ones that mainly remember the name are the parents and the siblings of that child. But you go a year down the road, two years down the road, and the people in their life, very few of them remember the name. Why is that? It's not because they don't love that family or don't care. It's just the reality that this child didn't come in and it, it, it didn't sort of build a name, if you, if, if you understand, it build a name for itself. So in other words, we don't have things, experiences where we can think of a child where we saw them doing certain things or that sort of gave them, gave them character and we, they sort of developed a reputation. Hopefully it was a good one. But we begin to put all the things that we're observing in that child's life with their name. And so he's just saying in this situation with a miscarriage, that's, that's not the case. And in that sense, no one really recognizes the name of this child. In fact, David's child is not named. So what's interesting is David and Bathsheba, the child, is born, lives seven days, but we have no, we have no uh, record in the scriptures of the name of that child. So again, I, it makes total sense to me. Solomon is just reflecting on his own experience and saying, I think about his own life. He's saying, when I think about my older brother, who, by the way, and of course, they might have named him and, may, and maybe perhaps Solomon knew that. But I think Solomon also understood that most people wouldn't know that, right? I mean, the coming and the going of that child was relatively, it was an obscure thing. Don't they name That's a possibility, yeah, that's a possibility. So, uh, so we have lists in Scripture of all David's children, but there's really no way to tie any of those names to that particular child. So, but that's, that's I haven't thought about that, but that's, that's, that's very possible. So, 
So why is a stillborn baby better off than this other man who lives a long life? And, and, I, and it's, I think, a number of reason, reasons. Because, because that child has no history, in a sense, to live down. <laughs> there's, just, there's no history there. Uh, no one knows anything about him, so he has no history. So, in a sense, no one can attack him or put him down for anything that he's, that he's done, right? And, and because while he will not experience trouble, for sure the wealthy man will. Right, the wealthy man is going to experience trouble, and according to verse seven, we know that both end up in the grave. Even if, even if he says the man lives, this man over here with with that that lives a long life. The example here is he lives to be two thousand years old. That even if he lives to be two thousand, they both end up in the grave. But but the miscarriage knows nothing of the frustrations, the disappointments, and the enigmas of life under the sun. And though a miscarriage might not experience any life under the sun and it might pass into obscurity and remain unknown to most, he will experience the grace of God and will be at rest with him. In fact, notice verse 5. Some of you have an ESV translation that says this, translates it this way. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. That is to say that though the stillborn child never had money, they never built a house. They never saw the latest movies. They never tried on the latest trends. That child is nonetheless at rest. And rest with God is one thing that the rich man still does not possess in this example. So the stillborn child possesses the riches of rest and provision with God that the wealthy person knows nothing of. So myth number one, having it all guarantees you will enjoy it all. Myth number two, living a long life guarantees you will grow in happiness. That's, that's just not true. In fact, long life and a big family without the gift of enjoyment, he says it's a grievous thing and a hurtful thing. Myth number three, meeting all of your needs guarantees your greatest need is met. Meeting all of your needs guarantees that your greatest need is met. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite, or it's translated really in in verses 2, 3, and 9 as soul, his life or his soul, which is again to be more consistently translated that way, and yet yet his life or his soul is not satisfied, which is just a term term that means to fill, to be filled or to be full. So it, he just says it just doesn't satisfy, right? And we see this. It happens every year at Christmas after we open our presents, right? We get what we thought we wanted and we enjoy it for a while, but soon there's something else that we wish we had instead or, or in addition to what we got, and, and our longings never seem to go away. I, I kind of chuckled this week because my son-in-law came over. He was, they were doing some little furniture thing in the basement, and I went down there, and he had, uh, was, it, was it Saturday? You had that little air gun? It was before. It was earlier in the week. He had a little pneumatic uh, little uh, nail gun. And, and the first, when I saw it, I thought, no, that's kind of cool. I thought, man, you know, I might, I might need to check, check that out. I, that looks like it was pretty fancy looking. I thought, and then it occurred to me, I have a nail gun. It's right over there in the corner. I mean, it wasn't 10 feet from where he was standing. <laughs> I, have, I have a nail gun. It does essentially the same thing as what his does, but his just looked, it looked fancier. It looked more sleek than the one that I got. You know, the one I got, I got, you know, 10 years ago. And it just occurred to me that that's just the way, the way it is, right? I have something that works. It'll do the job, and yet there's something about seeing something that somebody else has and thinking, 
I might trade mine in, or I might see if he wants, maybe he'll take the old one. Maybe he'll give me the new one, right? Uh, our longings never go away for very long. In fact, I found this article in the Wall Street Journal called No Satisfaction, Why What You Have Is Never Enough by Jonathan Clements. This was back in 2007. He says, we may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. As a country, we are richer than ever. And yet surveys show that Americans are no happier than they were 30 years ago. The key problem, we aren't very good at figuring out what will make us happy. We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks, and initially such things boost our happiness, but the glow of satisfaction quickly fades, and soon we're yearning for something else. Similarly, we tell our friends that our kids are our greatest joy. Research, however, suggests that arrival of children lowers parents' reported happiness as they struggle with the daily stresses involved, which raises the obvious question, why do we keep striving after these things? Experts offer two explanations. (laughs) Number one, we aren't built to be happy. Rather, we are built to survive and reproduce. Okay, so this is a secular, okay, yeah, okay, they're trying to figure this out. (laughs) So their first solution here is we're not built, we're not built to be happy, which is so contrary to what, I mean, everything Solomon's been saying is we are built to be happy in the right way with the right things, with the right perspective. But he says we were built to survive and reproduce. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors didn't struggle mightily to protect and feed their families. The promise of happiness, meanwhile, is just a trick to jolly us along. This is an incentive scheme for the benefit of our genes, argues Boston money manager Terry Burnham, co-author of Mean Genes. It's a very fundamental trick that's played on us, this lure of perpetual bliss. Don't like the idea that we're hoodwinked by some hardwired set of ancient instincts? Blame it instead on societal beliefs. Working hard and raising children may not make us happier, but these beliefs keep society functioning, and those who embrace them prosper and end up passing these values on to their children. Number two, (laughs) which there's some truth to this. He says the other issue here is that we're bad at forecasting. Consider a study by academics Daniel Kahneman and David Schade. They asked university students in the Midwest and Southern California where they thought someone like themselves would be happier. And both groups picked California, in large part because of the better weather. Yet, when asked how satisfied they were with their own lives, both groups were equally happy. Quote, when you're thinking about moving to California, you're thinking about the beaches and the weather, says Mr. Skade, a management professor at the University of California at San Diego. But you aren't thinking about the fact that you'll be spending a lot of time in the grocery store or doing chores. People emphasize differences that are easy to observe ahead of time and forget about the similarities. When we predict what will make us happy, we're also influenced by how we feel today. If we buy the the weekly groceries just after we've had lunch, we will shop much less, much more selectively. The downside, a few days later, we will be staring unhappily into an empty refrigerator. Maybe most important, we fail to anticipate how quickly we will adapt to improvements in our, in our lives. We think everything will be wonderful when we move into the bigger house. We don't realize that after a few months, we will take the extra space for granted. Experience should help us avoid repeating such mistakes, but it doesn't, in part because we don't accurately recall how we really felt says Harvard psychology professor Daniel Gilbert, author of Stumbling on Happiness. 
One example, we work devilishly hard to get that next promotion because we're sure it will leave us elated. We forget that when we last got promoted, it was a bit of a letdown. With any luck, just knowing we are susceptible to these pitfalls will help. But you might also try a reality check. Professor Gilbert says, suppose you think you will be happier if you move to a small rural town, adopt a child, or quit your job and become a high school math teacher. Don't rely on the opinions of others who live in small towns, have adopted kids, or have become teachers. Instead, spend, spend some time observing these folks and see whether they're happy. Becoming a teacher sounds quite romantic, Professor Gilbert says, but hanging around high school math teachers may quickly disabuse you of that notion. So, not a bad job at observation, right? I mean, the guy's basically seeing the same stuff. I mean, he could be speaking out of his own personal experience. Not a bad job, job of observation, not a very good job of diagnosing the real problem, right? And not a very good job of prescribing a solution. So, we're, we're sort of out of time. We'll, we'll stop here. We'll come back, um, and we'll finish out the rest of Chapter 6 next week and uh, finish up these myths and then we'll move on to chapter 7 because ba- basically it's, it's interesting. The, in, what, in, in chapter 6, Solomon is basically saying that prosperity and wealth and abundance may not always be a good thing. He flips that around and in chapter 7 he says this, that he, ar- he sort of argues for the opposite, that adversity or affliction is not always a bad thing. Right, because we as, we make those kinds of assumptions. We assume that if you're prosperous, that that's good. It's not always good. And the opposite, right? We assume that adversity is bad, when adversity is the thing that God uses us many times to drive us to greater dependence on God. Right. So we'll we'll get there, but we'll finish up, Lord willing, chapter six next week, and then uh, just uh, prior to Christmas, we'll uh, that Sunday we should be into chapter seven and talk about the issue of adversity and how God uses that in our, in our lives. Okay, folks. All right. Thank you for your time.